you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me this morning to the book of 2 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians. If you do not have a copy of God's Word with you, if you do not have a Bible, you will find one under the chairs in front of you, and you will find our passage this morning on page 965, 965. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Matt Chandler is a man who pastors the Village Church outside Dallas, Texas. That's one of the healthiest, one of the fastest growing churches in the states right now. Chandler leads not with a confidence in himself or in his resources, but in a confidence in the gospel message itself. And he has seen amazing uh, growth even at only 35 years of age. Yet it was exactly one year ago this past Thursday on Thanksgiving in 2009 that Chandler woke up as he usually does to a steaming cup of black coffee. He then fed a bottle to his six-month-old daughter, sat down on the couch to relax, and suddenly suffered a massive seizure that put him in the hospital and found him waking up uh, days later to a doctor telling him that he had a brain tumor. For the last year, he has endured brain surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy, even as he tries to be a husband to his wife, a father to his children, and a pastor to his church. Sometimes we ask the question, why do God's people suffer? Other times we shake our heads and ask, why do Christian leaders who are accomplishing so much, why do they suffer so much? Well, some of the Corinthians in Paul's day had similar thoughts, though they were asking a very different question. They were asking, why should we consider Paul such a great apostle when he suffers so much? You can imagine with a question like that in their minds, Paul's relationship to the Corinthians was a very complicated one. And last week we looked at the big picture of 1 Corinthians, and this morning we want to look at the big picture of 2 Corinthians as we continue on in the series called According to Plan. And if you've been with us, uh, you will know, and if you haven't been with us, I'll tell you, the goal of this series is to provide an overview of the entire Bible and its storyline book by book. So a little over a year and a half ago, we started the book of Genesis, the very beginning of the story, and we looked at what God was trying to say, uh, not only in terms of his purposes and his plan, but what were the very themes of Genesis, and we did that all in one sermon. And as the story of God has been unfolding across the scriptures, we find ourselves now uh, at the book of 2 Corinthians and the the instructions that Paul is writing to uh, the believers there at Corinth. But in order to understand Paul's relationship to the Corinthians, in order to understand how his first letter that we have and this second letter that we have fit together, we need to pause and step back and do just a little bit of history. We need to understand uh, where is the relationship Paul has with the Corinthians at this time. His relationship with, began when he started the church there. Paul was uh, the pioneer missionary who took the gospel to the city of Corinth and he spent about a year and a half there preaching the gospel and establishing the church. And when he felt like his work as the pioneer was done, he left the church in the hands of of, uh, able men to carry that task of building the church up on and he went on to pursue uh, their ministry. But it was about a year later that Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians writing in response to news that he'd heard that the church was struggling spiritually. 
The Corinthians responded to Paul with a letter of their own asking for clarification on things he said in that letter and things he had taught uh, now over two years past. And all those questions revealed to Paul that there was some deep, deep confusion about spiritual matters that resulted in them living lives not in keeping with their call to be a Christian. There was rampant immorality and division and factions and all of these things troubled Paul, causing him to write another letter, which we have in our Bible as 1 Corinthians. In that letter, Paul not only offered counsel and direction for the church, but he also said that he hoped to come and actually see the Corinthians face to face that he might minister them in that way. However, his plans changed. He wasn't able to go. And so he sent Timothy, his partner, to go. However, when Timothy arrived, he found the situation in Corinth to be as bad or even worse than it had been before. They hadn't done anything that Paul had told them to do in his, in his uh, second letter, what we have as 1 Corinthians, and the church was fragmenting more and more into divisions under the weight of its sin. Paul heard this news from Timothy, immediately put everything else aside, and made an urgent visit to Corinth to try and put things right. But this turned out to be a very bitter and humiliating experience for Paul. He was not well received by the Corinthians. It was what he called a painful visit. It was a bitter experience. The church not only rejected Paul's instructions, but they had chosen to follow other leaders, other pastors of the church, uh, more than him. They said, we would rather follow these guys than you, Paul. In fact, they even ridiculed his apostleship. Not surprisingly, Paul did not stay long in Corinth, and even the shortness of his stay was used by his opponents in that city to say, see, Paul doesn't even love us. He doesn't even care about us. Look how fickle he is. He says he wants to come and minister to us, and yet the first chance he bolts out of the city. But the truth was, Paul did care for the Corinthians, and he couldn't leave things the way they were. He feared that his enemies there, those false teachers, would completely destroy the work of the gospel that had begun in that city. Therefore, Paul wrote a third letter to the Corinthians. And Titus was the one who took this letter to Corinth while Paul remained in Ephesus where he faced some of the, the worst opposition to the gospel he had ever encountered. Eventually, Paul and Titus reunited and the apostle received news of how things were going with Corinth. The good news was that many had repented of their treatment of Paul and the gospel message, but it was not all good news. Some remained in a lifestyle of immorality, while others continued to look down on Paul because of his suffering. All this was made worse by now a new group that had come in, false apostles, who came in and undermined Paul's authentic apostleship and made it very difficult for Paul to minister to the Corinthians. And now it's into this context that Paul writes his fourth letter to this church, the second one that we have in the Bible, and it's this letter, 2 Corinthians, that we want to look at this morning. It's here that Paul causes us to reflect on the relationship between God's definition or our definition of success in ministry, suffering, and how we go about living a life faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just before the passage we're going to look at in chapter 4, Paul is describing his ministry as an apostle of the new covenant in Christ. And what he is saying is his ministry is not like the old covenant under Moses and the law, but now under the new covenant, he has a more glorious ministry, a ministry that is explicitly focused on Christ and the proclamation of his name among the nations. It is a ministry that is more glorious because it is very, it's, it's, it's empowered by the very spirit of 
Christ in Paul and in those to whom he is witnessing. So in chapter 4, with this in mind, he says, Therefore, having this ministry, this new covenant ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what was written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. May God bless the reading of his word. In this passage, Paul lays out his understanding of ministry in the midst of suffering. And it's an important passage for us to consider because if we claim the name of Christ, if we call ourselves to be Christians, then we are all ministers of the gospel. That does not mean that we are all called to be pastors. But what it means is that as Jesus' disciples, we are all called to be disciple makers. Whether that is proclaiming the gospel, sharing it to uh, uh, those in our natural web of relationships, lost co-workers and family members or whether it means being involved in some other kind of ministry to the church it means that we open our mouths we speak the gospel and encourage saving faith we we call sinners to faith in the lord jesus christ and the question is what role does suffering play in our life what role does suffering and difficulty and affliction what role does that have in our life as ministers of the gospel this morning, we want to see the answers to those questions from the Apostle Paul himself, a man who knew suffering all too well. And what he gives for us is, I believe, four descriptions of truly successful ministry in the midst of difficulty and suffering. Four descriptions of ministry that we ourselves should seek out and desire to have. So here's the first thing that we see. We see this. We should seek an honorable ministry despite ridicule. We should seek an honorable ministry despite ridicule. Again, Paul is writing this letter as a man under fire. 
The false apostles had entered this church and they knew they could not make headway with this people. They could not advance their agenda unless they undermined the real apostle, the apostle Paul. And so they begin a campaign of doing this very thing, tearing down his reputation and not only of himself but also of his ministry. These men that Paul sarcastically calls super apostles came in with every appearance of strength and confidence. They presented themselves as professionals, well-trained in skilled rhetoric and speech. They knew the power of words, utilizing verbs and adjectives to deliver eloquent and powerful speeches. They even carried with them credentials to this fact, um, recommendations of their abilities from other places they had been. And all of this came with the high price they felt they deserved, the, the, the cost they charged the Corinthians to come and be apostles with them. And all of that, all of that attitude could be labeled with one word, pride. And though we would hear that word and bells would immediately ring, within the context of the Corinthian culture, pride was a good thing. As Michael Douglas said in one of his movies, greed is good. So the Corinthians would have said, pride is good. And these so-called super apostles came in and fed directly into the cravings of that prideful culture. And of course, the contrast between these men and Paul could not have been greater. Unlike these men, Paul did not come with impressive credentials. In fact, he told the Corinthians that they were his credentials. He said, you want credentials? Look at your own lives. He says, think about the change that has come about in your lives spiritually. That's the evidence of my apostleship. Furthermore, Paul was not trained in classical skills of rhetoric. I once heard a, a, a preaching professor at the seminar I went to say that Paul would have been uh, an amazing preacher. He would have, had, he would have come with, uh, with power and skill. And depending on what he meant, I would have agreed. But I don't think the Corinthians, the first time they heard him, would have thought that. They would have thought, man, this guy is boring. This guy's dull. Where is the where is the skill? Where is the uh, where is the presence? Where is the the logos, the pathos, and the ethos? All of those things that we're used to. Remember, we said that this culture was one of these roving teachers. They were somewhere between uh, Dr. Phil and Jerry Seinfeld. We said giving both humorous insights to life, but also advice on how to survive in culture. And so they were they were used to this kind of um, public speaking entertainment industry and paul comes in and he's none of those things in fact he says i came and i was not eloquent i was unimpressive and weak in front of you and of course paul was not prideful in any way as evidenced by the fact that he didn't charge for his services and it's interesting that it's this very ministry that he wants to have for the Corinthians, this love for him, that he did not just come in uh, saying, uh, you need to trust Christ, and then once you trust Christ, you need to support me in my labors. No, he, he worked as a tent maker. He had other churches that were established and knew him and loved him support his ministry. But it's this very thing that Paul didn't charge for his services that the Corinthians see as a sign of weakness and unprofessionalism and look down on him for. Yet Paul's ministry had something the others did not. And all of this perceived superiority, these super apostles were less than true apostles because, as we're told in chapter 11, they preached a different Jesus and a different gospel. They didn't preach the truth. And Paul did. Therefore, he explains he is a true minister of the new covenant because he preaches the truth about Jesus 
And even in the midst of this ridicule, then, he can say, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. He says, you mock, you make fun, you ridicule me, and yet I will not despair over these things. I will not lose heart. Why? He says, because we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper by God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. He says, I will not descend to, to pander to you like in your culture. He says, I'm not going to go down to that level. I'm not going to use a, a, a means of twisting the word of God to make it more palatable to you. No, I'm simply going to come and I'm going to preach the truth with honesty and integrity. I'm going to have an honorable ministry in God's eyes before you. And that will be the commendation that we lift up and nothing else. Now, as we think about that, you know, we have to admit there is a, a great deal of pressure today, isn't there, for the church to be perceived as cool, right? I mean, am I the only one that, that sees this? Maybe I should show you the mail I get sometimes. Uh, DVDs on how to do ministry and so many other things. And, and though it does not actually come out and say it, uh, the, the, the subtitle to all of this, the subtext is how to make your church cool in the world. And there's a, there's a great temptation, isn't there, to want to be liked by the world, to want to be well thought of by the world. I'm reminded of um, that commercial that McDonald's put out. You remember when the McCafe coffees first came out? And there's this commercial that starts with two guys in a coffee shop, and they're, they're looking all cool and pretentious, uh, drinking this coffee. And the one looks up from whatever book he's reading and says, you know, McDonald's has cappuccino now. And the other guy looks up from his book, and you think he's going to be like, Pfft. and instead he's like, that is awesome. And he slams the book closed. And he says, I can actually shave this thing off my face. He's got this soul patch. And then the guy says, I know. And he starts taking off all of these trendy sweaters and, and scarves and things. They're like, we don't even have to go now to watch foreign films. We can actually sit and talk about football. And the one guy's like, I don't even need these, these dark glasses anymore. And it, the whole thing is, they've got this stereotype that if we're going to be cool, we've got to act this way. We've got to go to the cool coffee house, and we've got to you know, talk about things we have absolutely no interest in and do all these things. People will like us. And now McDonald's, right? Which, given the numbers, is actually more cool than Starbucks. Now they have the cappuccino, so they can go and enjoy their foo-foo coffee and do so in a way that seems normal. And the reality is, you know, the church is often like those guys. We, we think we've got to package everything that's going to make the world happy. We have to kind of pull this bait and switch. No, no, this is cool. This has got a little bit of Jesus in it. Trust us. It's cool. You'll, you'll like it. And so we, you know, we have to get the crazy haircuts and the trendy glasses. And, you know, I mean, if you just look at all the, all the guys, the most popular uh, preachers that label themselves missional, you'll notice they all have the same style eyeglasses. I find that odd. It's not that the eyeglasses don't look nice. It's not that they don't look cool and trendy. But why do they all have the same kind? I, I don't know. But I have a sneaking suspicion it's because they want to be well-liked by the world. And Paul says, that's not the way. That's not the way to have a successful ministry. The pursuit of coolness by people who do not know God and care nothing about God is not the way to get them to know God. Instead, he says... Instead, we strive for an honorable ministry. We do not try to blend in with the world. We do not try to mimic what they do. Yes, we don't want people ridiculing us. We don't want people saying we're narrow-minded or culturally backward. But the focus we must have, even if we endure ridicule, 
is a focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ and proclaiming it truthfully. We strive for an honorable ministry. We don't change the Bible. We don't edit out the tough passages or the parts the world doesn't like. We don't try bait and switch tactics. We don't try and dupe or pressure people into coming to the church or believe in the gospel. Instead, we simply, faithfully proclaim Jesus. But what about those that don't believe? What about those that still reject the gospel? The Corinthians would have said, look, Paul, not everybody is following you. Doesn't that mean there's something wrong with your message? Does that mean there's something wrong with your ministry? And Paul answers this objection and he says, no. No, in fact, we can secondly, we, should, we can have and we should have a confident ministry despite rejection. We should have a confident ministry despite rejection. Paul preached the truth about Jesus and he did so without trickery or deceit and yet some didn't believe. And some in Corinth even today would look and say, there's something wrong then with what you're doing. But listen to what he says. If our gospel is veiled, in other words, if, if the truthfulness of it is obscured and people aren't believing it, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Notice the argument that Paul says. If some reject the gospel, it's not because there's something wrong with the gospel, nor is there necessarily something wrong with the person preaching it. And the reason why people don't believe is because they have been blinded by the God of this world, namely the devil. Now think about that for a minute. I mean, that's mind-blowing to me. And it should be to you. You know, we, we, live, in a, we live in a very naturalistic society. And in our, in our, we talked last week about the kind of vague and general spiritualities we believe. But at the end of the day, we really like science and fact, and we like to be able to categorize and, and check things off. That's the way our culture functions. And yet Paul says that's not the whole of it. There is an unseen spiritual reality that is at work. And specifically when it comes to the gospel, the reason why people don't believe is not because they've made a rational decision. I don't like this, therefore I'm rejecting it. It's because Satan has blinders on their eyes spiritually. So they cannot believe, nor do they want to. You know, several years ago, there was a movie that came out called The Matrix. And I know uh, some of you have seen that. If you decide upon hearing this illustration, you want to go see it, I'll warn you, it has some language in it. And, and second of all, the two sequels, frankly, aren't worth seeing. Okay, They kind of went, went downhill. The first one, is uh, story-wise, is, is pretty decent. But the whole thing revolves around um, this kind of um, uh, computer programmer by day, computer hacker by night, Tom Anderson character, who is kind of bored with the vanilla-ness, if I can coin a phrase there, of, of life. And, and goes into this computer hacking underworld uh, to, to, try and, to try and satisfy himself. And in the midst of that, he comes across this man by the name of Morpheus, another hacker he believes. But Morpheus uh, uh, makes himself known to him, and he basically says, let me tell you why you're longing for something more. Let me tell you why you're unhappy with your life. Let me tell you about reality. The vast majority of the human race is, in fact, not walking around, not living, not having life like they think. They're all encased in these pods, jacked into a virtual reality world called the Matrix, and they're just having images and sights and sounds about, about life pumped into their brains. And so the tagline of the movie, the, the theme of Morpheus says is, free your mind. And that's exactly what this Tom Anderson does. He, he trusts Morpheus, and he winds up waking up in the middle of this uh, massive uh, computer-generated image of all these pods 
uh, where he's been uh, soaking in this vat of nutrient for his whole entire life. And suddenly now he's in the real world. Well, that's a great sci-fi plot, isn't it? Actually, it's a ripoff of an old, uh, you know, philosophy story called the parable of the cave but we won't get into that now but it's a great sci-fi premise but here's the reality more than we would like to imagine that is reality two-thirds of the world over four and a half billion people are, are walking around blinded to spiritual reality the god of this age the devil has blinded them to the glory of christ and the beauty of god's grace in the gospel and so they don't want to believe they don't want to trust in Jesus. They love their sin even when it hurts them. Like Paul says elsewhere, it is like a dog returning to its vomit. They go back to their sin again and again and again. What's the solution to the problem? Paul tells us, though Satan blinds, God gives light. Verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Just as God created light in the darkness at the very beginning of creation, so also now God speaks light into the hearts of those who are in spiritual darkness. The solution to the blindness brought by Satan is the shining of the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How does that light shine? Verse 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Listen to what Paul is saying. He is saying, when we preach the gospel, when we proclaim it, when we share it, when we walk somebody through a tract that quotes Bible verses about it, we are being used as a conveyance for the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in Jesus Christ to shine into the hearts of unbelievers that they might have their blindness removed and they might have faith in Christ for salvation. So do you understand what Paul is saying here? Blindness equals death and hell. Preaching the gospel equals light and forgiveness and salvation. You say, I wonder why they go on and on telling us we gotta, we got to tell people about Jesus, we got to tell people about Jesus. It's because we are bringing freedom to their lives. We are freeing them from spiritual blindness as God has chosen to use the preaching of the gospel to, re, to, to bring his light into their life. This light of new birth that gives rise to faith in Christ. It is the speaking of the truth of the gospel that brings salvation to sinners. This is why Paul is so upset at these super apostles, these false apostles. Frankly, I think he could care less about what they said about him, but they weren't preaching Jesus. They were preaching a different Jesus. Different Jesus means different gospel means no light, no light, no salvation. So Paul is looking at the city of Corinth that he labored over, that he loved over, and he says, the glory of the gospel is not shining. No one's going to get saved. And this is why he comes in and he says, you've got to get rid of these people. It wasn't an exercise in public speaking. It wasn't about presenting mere words or topics. It wasn't about building a power base or entertaining people to keep them happy with yourself so you'd be well paid. Paul says, the preaching ministry of the word of God is proclaiming the truth that is the, ultimately the power of God for salvation. So whether it is a preacher standing behind this pulpit, whether it is you quoting scripture, reading verses from a tract, understand when you present the gospel, when you tell people about Jesus, God is shining the light of the knowledge of his glory through Christ. Therefore, Paul says, for himself and for us today, whether people reject you, 
whether they mock you, whether they ridicule you, whether they think you are some Neanderthal Puritan from 200 years ago because you believe in Jesus and you actually live the way he wants you to. He says, don't lose heart. Your ministry will be effective. God will save people through what you are doing. The third thing that he tells us is this, that we can have a powerful ministry despite weakness. We can have a powerful ministry despite weakness. Paul says the message of the gospel is like a treasure. It is valuable. It is precious. But he also says we have this treasure in jars of clay. Now, what in the world does that mean? I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't have any jars of clay around my house. Not that I know of anyway. So, so what is he talking about? Well, he's drawing a contrast here. I mean, think about where we keep treasure, right? Well, we don't really think about treasure too much. We have banks. But uh, think, think, you know, uh, think Pirates of the Caribbean. They're looking for a treasure. What are they looking for? They're looking for some massive, you know, wooden chest with metal clasps and locks, something that can, you know, be buried in the sand and be covered in water, and yet it's not going to fall apart. It's going to be sturdy and stable. It's going to keep treasure for decades possibly until they can come back and get it. And Paul says... Paul says, that's not what we have. He says, we are like clay pots. We are fragile. We are weak. We are easily cracked. That's what we are. And yet, God has placed the treasure of the gospel in us. Just think about that for a minute. The greatest treasure in the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and God entrusts it to mere jars of clay like us. Now, why in the world would he do that? I mean, can, can you imagine, just for a minute, imagine being an angel. You have no need of redemption. Uh, you, you don't quite understand sin, Paul will, will say later. So they long to look into the things that go on in this world. And in the council of heaven, God says, okay, Christ, now it is time for you to go and to take on flesh and to be born at a time 2,000 years from now they're going to call Christmas, and you're going to eventually bear the sins of the world. And Jesus says... Uh, it is your will, and I delight to do it. And the angels say, what in the world's going on? Well, what is going on? And they explain. Uh, Christ is going to take on flesh. He will be the fulfillment of the Messiah. He is going to die for their sins, and he's going to raise back to life. And angels say, well, that, that's amazing. That's quite, I don't know why you're doing that. They don't deserve it. They're not going to be as grateful as they should be for it. And then Jesus comes back, and they're like, well, what's going to happen now? They're like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give this message of what I've done to these to, to these sinful people, and they're going to tell other people, and that's how people are going to get saved. And they're going to go, what? I mean, we love you. We worship you. We do everything that you tell us to do, but we don't get it. Th- this sounds screwy to us. You're going to give them the gospel? You're going to entrust your plan of salvation to these people, these weak, broken, disobedient people, these jars of clay? And God says, yes, that's why I'm, I'm going to do that. That's exactly what I'm going to do. Why? The Apostle Paul tells us, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This is why God does this. Ultimately, so that he is the one who receives the glory. It's he who is magnified and not us. The one with the power gets the glory. So if you are weak and you serve God, then you're not the one getting the glory. God is the one getting the glory. Paul understood this, and he was a clay jar if there ever was one. Paul himself says he wasn't much to look at. 
chapter 10, verse 1, he says he came to Corinth in meekness, like one who was weak and unimpressive. Why do you think he describes himself like that? I mean, here he is the apostle. I mean, clearly he has to know. In fact, he does know that he is this, uh, he is this massive um, uh, beachhead into the nations for the gospel. And yet he says, I'm, I'm weak, I'm meek, I'm unimpressive. Well, think about the life that he has lived at this point. Chapter 6, he says, He has served God by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. He goes on in chapter 11 to say, He experienced many imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was nearly beaten to death with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Can you imagine living that kind of life? I mean, we get the flu and we're whining and moaning and griping. Can you imagine what Paul would have looked like at this point? I mean, you read the commentaries, they say after, after enduring just these, uh, these lashings, these five 40 lashes minus one, they said his back would have looked like jelly. I mean, it would have had flesh exposed and skin and scabs would have formed over and there may have been even uh, bits of bone protruding, hard little knobs. And that's just his back. Here's a man who has been through the ringer, and it's no, it's no surprise that he says, I come and I look like nothing. I look weak. I look unimpressive. And it's for those reasons the Corinthians absolutely despised Paul. He wasn't the kind of apostle they wanted. They wanted the guy that had the white teeth. They wanted the guy that had the hair looking always perfect. They wanted the guy who looked like he spent uh, 12 hours a week at the gym and whose kids and family were all perfect and who had all of the book smarts, had all of the degrees, had all of the rhetoric and the speaking abilities, who made them laugh and made them cry and made them their affections move and their, their wills to, to follow along. And here comes the Apostle Paul, slight, balding, big beard, no family, beaten to death nearly half of his life. And they say, man, we don't want that. We don't look at that. It's weak. It's weak. We want impressive. We want power. And Paul says, I don't have any of that to offer. In fact, while the other guys are boasting about all of their credentials, he says in chapter 11, I feel insane even saying this, but if you want me to boast like the super apostles boast, then here's what I will boast in. I will boast in my weakness. If you want me to boast, then I will boast the fact I have nothing to boast about. Why? Because I have learned this. When I am weak, God is strong. When I am at my lowest, when I have nothing else to give, then God reveals himself in power and he gets the glory. More than that, this weakness is part of the very message that Paul is bringing. In verse 8, he says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carried in the body the death of Jesus. So the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to, the death of the, given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. 
Paul says, when Jesus experienced weakness, suffering, and death, he did it to secure salvation for sinners. He willingly stood in the place of God as our representative and took the punishment we deserve for our sinful rebellion against the Father. Yet God, being God in the flesh, Jesus was not held down by death, but was raised up to live forever through the resurrection. He now reigns as king over all things. That is the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And Paul says every time he experiences weakness, the power of God is made manifest in his life, and people see the gospel displayed before their eyes. That he embodies the very message that he proclaims. So the question we have to ask ourselves is this, how weak are we? How weak are we? Notice that I'm not saying, how much have you suffered? I'm not saying, you know, can, can you list off there beatings and shipwrecks and all that? I'm not asking that. I'm not asking you to compare your life experience to Paul or to anybody else for that matter. What I'm asking is, how weak are you? Do you think the success of your ministry depends on what you can do? Do you think in order to be an effective witness for Christ that, that your life has to be all put together with no problems or else no one's going to listen to you? Do you think that you have to be a master of apologetics, defending the faith against every argument that someone might bring against the existence of God or the authority of Scripture? Do you think that you must have massive amounts of Scripture memorized, that you must be eloquent and well put together in your speech? If that's, if that's what you think, then God can't use you, frankly. Or He's not going to be able to use you very much. Because you are looking to yourself for power. And God says, I don't work that way. God says, I take the person who is weak. I take the person who thinks they have nothing to offer, who is saying, God, I fully depend on you. And God says, I am well pleased to come and do powerful things through that person. You think about the person who is considered the pioneer of modern missions, William Carey. You know how he started out? Shoe cobbling. The guy is fixing shoes. He's not a pastor. He's not a trained seminarian. He's fixing shoes in a shop. But he's reading about the world and he's reading the Bible. He's reading about all these people who are not Christians and he's reading, if they don't know Christ, they go to hell. And he says, God, I've got to do something about this. And so he not only becomes the pioneer of the modern missions movement, he translates the Bible into all different kinds of dialects for the people in India and he sets the pace for missions for the next 150 years. Did he start off saying, I've, I've got what God wants, I've got the power? He says, I've got nothing, but somebody must go. And God says, let me be the power. Because when you're weak, then I will be strong. If you think of yourself as a cup of gold, there may not be much use for you in the kingdom, but if you acknowledge you are, in fact, a clay jar, then God will show himself powerful. When we minister for Christ and proclaim his name in our weakness, then God is the one who gets the glory because he is shown to be powerful as he saves sinners. We are to have an honorable ministry despite ridicule, a confident ministry despite rejection, a powerful ministry despite weakness, and finally a hopeful ministry despite suffering. Paul quotes in verse 13 from Psalm 116. Psalm 116 was written by David. It was a psalm of thanksgiving to God for the deliverance he received from his enemies. And in the midst of this psalm, David says, even as he called out to the Lord in the midst of his affliction, he believed the Lord would save him. And Paul says, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what was written by David, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. 
Paul is saying that just like David, he believes that God will deliver him from his sufferings even while he is in the midst of them preaching the gospel. But what kind of deliverance is Paul looking for? I mean, we hear today from every, every place imaginable that if you're really godly, you're not going to have any problems in your life. You'll be healthy, wealthy, and happy. Is that what Paul's after here? Is that the deliverance that he thinks? Does he think that he will, he will avoid suffering? I doubt it. He, well, I mean, think about the list we just read. What has he said? I endured all of these things. No, what Paul's looking forward to is a greater deliverance through Christ on the day of resurrection. Verse 14, he says, The deliverance I'm looking for, the hope that I have is this. I know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with him and bring us with you into his presence. Paul is not looking for an escape from suffering, but a final deliverance on the last day. He is looking forward to the resurrection where he will one day experience, just as Christ himself was raised from the dead, so also Paul will be raised from the dead. And it's because that is what he hopes, and he can say this, for it is all for your sake, all of the weakness, all the ridicule, the suffering, it's for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Paul is saying, man, this physical body is breaking down. It is wasting away. It is dying. But God inwardly is working in the soul, renewing me, preparing me for eternity. Every affliction, every suffering, all of it is working to create in me the image of Christ. It is making me mature and holy like him. And so he says, this light and momentary affliction. Think about that. Think, recall in your mind all that we read, and now Paul calls that a light and momentary affliction. All of that is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul says in the midst of all this stuff going on in his life, all this suffering, all this ridicule, he says, I've got my eyes on the future. And it's the prospect of glory with Christ that allows him not to lose heart. Paul is looking to an eternity of glorious fellowship with God and his people, and he looks at that, and then he looks at his life of suffering, and he says, I understand that my suffering is being used to spread the gospel so that there will be more people with me before Christ on the day of his return. Through my sufferings, the gospel is going forward, and because the gospel is going forward, God is spreading the knowledge of the glory of Christ to others. He is lifting the veil from darkness and giving them belief. And so he looks at all that's going on in his life. He looks at the ridicule, the suffering, the afflictions, and he says, I can do this. I can endure this. Because this is nothing. This is nothing compared to what God is doing through it. There's a man who's been shipwrecked. He's been beaten, he's been mocked, he's gone hungry, he's been locked in prison. And what does he say? He says, it's worth it. It's worth it. How do you say that? I mean, how do you say that? It's if you realize the weight of glory that is going to be in heaven with God, waiting for you who trust in Jesus. It's if you understand the miracle of the new birth that God gives through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This past week, some of you in your community groups read about a missionary named John G. Patton. Others of you will read about him tonight. He was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific, and as he was preparing to go, several people told him, don't go. They said, it is, it is not a good idea for you to go and be a missionary. Their argument was, you're young, you're bright, 
You have talent. It's going to be a waste to send you to an island full of cannibals to preach the gospel. Stay and pastor a large church. Yet he would not be deterred from taking the gospel there. And in this, in this meeting he's having with the leaders of his church, one elderly man finally in exasperation stood up and he yelled, The cannibals! You'll be eaten by cannibals! Very calmly, Patton simply replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving the honor of the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether my body is eaten by cannibals or by worms. Patton, like Paul before him, shows us that despite the prospect of suffering, we can have a ministry filled with hope because we will have glimpsed the future that God holds for us in Christ. As we end, the question is this, what does your life look like? What kind of ministry for Christ do you have? Do you understand the place of weakness and affliction and ridicule and suffering? Or have you fallen into the trap of believing this, that success is measured by those who have perfect lives, who always stay together and never fall apart? Have you come to realize that when you are at your weakest, God is at his most powerful? And that when he is the one doing the heavy lifting in ministry, then he is the one that's going to get the glory as he deserves. Father, it is our earnest desire that you would be glorified in our lives. Father, we don't long for suffering. We don't long to face affliction and ridicule. And yet, God, when it comes, help us to not be shaken by it. Help us to not be moved by it. Help us to not lose hope in the midst of it. For, Father, we know that it is simply part of your plan to bring about your saving message to the nations. Father, we pray that in every way our minds would be renewed God, our thinking would, would shift so that we understand not only the essential, the essential nature of proclaiming the gospel to those that do not yet believe, but, Father, even in how we go about bringing that, that, God, when we are weak, you are strong. Father, help us to know these things. Help us to believe these things. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen.